If you're enjoying this book, then I know you will love the exclusive stories on our premium feed. Follow the link in the show notes to try it free for seven days and dive into more of your favorite sleepy stories. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight we'll be returning again to Anne of Green Gables. But before that, let's take some time to unwind and relax. Take a big stretch where you are and feel the tension release from your muscles. I recently learned a calming breath I want to share with you now. We're going to breathe in through our nose for a count of four and out through our mouths for a count of eight. So, inhale through your nose for one, two, three, four, and now out through your mouth for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You can use this breath whenever you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed throughout your day too, and repeat it as much as you like. Last time we were together, Marilla was in a panic after finding her treasured amethyst brooch missing from her room. On questioning Anne, the girl admitted to putting it on for a moment, but returning it directly. Marilla searched everywhere and concluded that Anne must have been lying, so Marilla forced Anne to stay in her room until she confessed. Afraid of missing the highly anticipated Sunday school picnic in confinement, On the day of the picnic, Anne did confess to taking the brooch and losing it in the lake of shining waters. Marilla was heartbroken and told Anne she would not be permitted to go to the picnic regardless. But that afternoon, she found the brooch hidden among the fabric of her shawl. It must have got caught in it when Marilla lay it on her bureau to be mended. Solemnly, she went to Anne to apologize for forcing her into a confession and told her she could go to the picnic after all, and she had such fun. Anne had been attending school for three weeks when Diana Barry told her about a boy named Gilbert Blythe who would be returning to their class after being away with his father. And so we pick back up tonight, Gilbert having returned to school and being his usual teasing self. So just relax and lie back 
as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 15 continued. A Tempest in the School Teapot Mr. Phillips was back in the corner explaining a problem in algebra to Prissy Andrews and the rest of the scholars were doing pretty much as they pleased, eating green apples, whispering, drawing pictures on their slates and driving crickets harnessed to strings up and down aisle. Gilbert Blythe was trying to make Anne Shirley look at him and failing utterly because Anne was at that moment totally oblivious, not only to the very existence of Gilbert Blythe, but of every other scholar in Avonlea School itself. With her chin propped on her hands, and her eyes fixed on the blue glimpse of the lake of shining waters that the west window afforded, she was far away in a gorgeous dreamland, hearing and seeing nothing save her own wonderful visions. Gilbert Blythe wasn't used to putting himself out to make a girl look at him, and meeting with failure. She should look at him, that red-haired Shirley girl with the little pointed chin and the big eyes that weren't like the eyes of any other girl in Avonlea school. Gilbert reached across the aisle, picked up the end of Anne's long red braid, held it out at arm's length and said, in a piercing whisper, Carrots! Carrots! Then Anne looked at him with a vengeance. She did more than look. She sprang to her feet, her bright fancies fallen into cureless ruin. She flashed one indignant glance at Gilbert from eyes whose angry sparkle was swiftly quenched in equally angry tears. You mean, hateful boy, she exclaimed passionately. How dare you? And then, thwack, Anne had brought her slate down on Gilbert's head and cracked it, slate, not head clear across. Avonlea School always enjoyed a scene. This was an especially enjoyable one. Everybody said, oh, in horrified delight. Diana gasped. Ruby Gillis, who was inclined to be hysterical, began to cry. Tommy Sloan let his team of crickets escape him altogether while he stared, open-mouthed at the tableau. Mr. Phillips stalked down the aisle and laid his hand heavily on Anne's shoulder. Anne Shirley, 
What does this mean? He said angrily. Anne returned no answer. It was asking too much of flesh and blood to expect her to tell before the whole school that she had been called Carrots. Gilbert it was who spoke up stoutly. It was my fault, Mr. Phillips. I teased her. Mr. Phillips paid no heed to Gilbert. I'm sorry to see a pupil of mine displaying such a temper and such a vindictive spirit, he said in a solemn tone, as if the mere fact of being a pupil of his ought to root out all evil passions from the hearts of small, imperfect mortals. Anne, go and stand on the platform in front of the blackboard for the rest of the afternoon. Anne would have infinitely preferred anything to this punishment, under which her sensitive spirit quivered as if from a whiplash. With a white, set face, she obeyed. Mr. Phillips took a chalk crayon and wrote on the blackboard above her head, Anne Shirley has a very bad temper. Anne was spelled A-N-N. Anne Shirley must learn to control her temper. And then he read it out loud so that even the primer class who couldn't read writing should understand it. Anne stood there the rest of the afternoon with that legend above her. She did not cry or hang her head. Anger was still too hot in her heart for that, and it sustained her amid all the agony of humiliation. With resentful eyes and passion-red cheeks, she confronted alike Diana's sympathetic gaze and Charlie Sloane's indignant nods and Josie Pye's malicious smiles. As for Gilbert Blythe, she would not even look at him. She would never look at him again. She would never speak to him. When school was dismissed, Anne marched out with her red head held high. Gilbert Blythe tried to intercept her at the porch door. I'm awfully sorry I made fun of your hair, Anne, he whispered contritely. Honest, I am. Don't be mad at me for keeps now. Anne swept by disdainfully, without look or sign of hearing. Oh, how could you, Anne? breathed Diana as they went down the road, half reproachfully, half admiringly. Diana felt that she could never have resisted Gilbert's plea. I shall never forgive Gilbert Blythe, said Anne firmly. And Mr. Phillips spelled my name without an E, too. The iron has entered my soul, Diana. Diana hadn't the least idea what Anne meant, but she understood it was something terrible. 
You mustn't mind Gilbert making fun of your hair, she said soothingly. Why, he makes fun of all the girls. He laughs at mine because it's so black. He's called me a crow a dozen times, and I never heard him apologize for anything before either. There's a great deal of difference between being called a crow and being called carrots, said Anne with dignity. Gilbert Blythe has hurt my feelings excruciatingly, Diana. It is possible the matter might have blown over without more excruciation if nothing else had happened, but when things begin to happen, they are apt to keep on. Avonlea scholars often spent noon hour picking gum in Mr. Bell's spruce grove over the hill and across his big pasture field. From there, they could keep an eye on Eben Wright's house where the master boarded. When they saw Mr. Philip emerging therefrom, they ran for the schoolhouse, but the distance being about three times longer than Mr. Wright's lane, they were very apt to arrive there breathless and gasping some three minutes too late. On the following day, Mr. Phillips was seized with one of his spadmodic fits of reform and announced before going home to dinner that he should expect to find all the scholars in their seats when he returned. Anyone who came in late would be punished. All the boys and some of the girls went to Mr. Bell's spruce grove as usual, fully intending to stay only long enough to pick a chew. But spruce groves are seductive, and yellow nuts of gum beguiling. They picked and loitered and strayed, and as usual, the first thing that recalled them to a sense of the flight of time was Jimmy Glover shouting from the top of a patriarchal old spruce, Master's coming. The girls who were on the ground started first and managed to reach the schoolhouse in time, but without a second to spare. The boys who had to wriggle hastily down from the trees were later, and Anne, who had not been picking gum at all, but was wandering happily in the far end of the grove, waist-deep among the bracken, singing softly to herself with a wreath of rice lilies on her hair as if she were some wild divinity of the shadowy places, was latest of all. Anne could run like a deer, however. Run she did, with the impish result that she overtook the boys at the door and was swept into the schoolhouse among them, just as Mr. Phillips was in the act of hanging up his hat. Mr. Phillips's brief reforming energy was over. He didn't want the bother of punishing a dozen pupils, but it was necessary to do something to save his word. So he looked about for a scapegoat and found it in Anne, 
who had dropped into her seat, gasping for breath with a forgotten lily wreath hanging askew over one ear, giving her a particularly rakish and disheveled appearance. And surely, since you seem to be so fond of the boy's company, we shall indulge your taste for it this afternoon, he said sarcastically. Take those flowers out of your hair and sit with Gilbert Blythe. The other boys snickered. Diana, turning pale with pity, plucked the wreath from Anne's hair and squeezed her hand. Anne stared at the master as if turned to stone. Did you hear what I said, Anne? queried Mr. Phillips sternly. Yes, sir, said Anne slowly. But I didn't suppose you really meant it. I assure you I did, he said, still with the sarcastic inflection which all the children, and especially Anne, hated. It flicked on the raw. Obey me at once. For a moment, Anne looked as if she meant to disobey. Then, realizing that there was no help for it, she rose haughtily, stepped across the aisle, sat down beside Gilbert Blythe, and buried her face in her arms on the desk. Ruby Gillis, who got a glimpse of it as it went down, told the others going home from school that she'd actually never seen anything like it. It was so white with awful little red spots in it. To Anne, this was the end of all things. It was bad enough to be singled out for punishment from among a dozen equally guilty ones. It was worse still to be sent to sit with a boy, but that that boy should be Gilbert Blythe was heaping insult on injury to a degree utterly unbearable. Anne felt that she could not bear it and would be of no use to try. Her whole being seethed with shame and anger and humiliation. At first, the other scholars looked and whispered and giggled and nudged. But as Anne never lifted her head, and as Gilbert worked fractions as if his whole soul was absorbed in them and them only, they soon returned to their own tasks, and Anne was forgotten. When Mr. Phillips called the history class out, Anne should have gone, but Anne did not move, and Mr. Phillips, who had been writing some verses to Priscilla, before he called the class, was thinking about an obstinate rhyme still and never missed her. Once, when nobody was looking, Gilbert took from his desk a little pink candy heart with a gold motto on it saying, You are sweet, and slipped it under the curve of Anne's arm, whereupon Anne arose took the pink heart gingerly between the tips of her fingers, 
dropped it on the floor, ground it to powder beneath her heel, and resumed her position without deigning to bestow a glance on Gilbert. When school went out, Anne marched to her desk, ostentatiously took out everything therein, books and writing tablet, pen and ink, testament and arithmetic, and piled them neatly on her cracked slate. What are you taking all those things home for, Anne? Diana wanted to know as soon as they were out on the road. She had not dared to ask the question before. I'm not coming back to school anymore, said Anne. Diana gasped and stared at Anne to see if she meant it. Will Marilla let you stay at home? She asked. She'll have to, said Anne. I'll never go to school to that man again. Oh, Anne. Diana looked as if she were ready to cry. I do think you're mean. What shall I do? Mr. Phillips will make me sit with that horrid Gertie pie. I know he will, because she's sitting alone. Do come back, Anne. I'd do almost anything in the world for you, Diana, said Anne sadly. I'd let myself be torn limb from limb if it would do you any good. But I can't do this, so please don't ask it. You harrow up my very soul. Just think of all the fun you will miss, mourned Diana. We are going to build the loveliest new house down by the brook, and we'll be playing ball next week. And you've never played ball, Anne. It's tremendously exciting. And we're going to learn a new song. Jane Andrews is practicing it up now. And Alice Andrews is going to bring a new pansy book next week. And we're all going to read it out loud down by the brook. And you know you are so fond of reading out loud, Anne. Nothing moved Anne in the least. Her mind was made up. She would not go to school to Mr. Phillips again. She told Marilla so when she got home. Nonsense, said Marilla. It isn't nonsense at all, said Anne, gazing at Marilla with solemn, reproachful eyes. Don't you understand, Marilla? I've been insulted. Insulted fiddlesticks. You'll go to school tomorrow as usual, Marilla replied. Oh no, Anne shook her head gently. I'm not going back, Marilla. I'll learn my lessons at home and I'll be as good as I can be and hold my tongue all the time if it's possible at all. But I will not go back to school. I assure you. Marilla saw something remarkably like unyielding stubbornness looking out of Anne's small face. She noticed that she would have trouble in overcoming it, but she resolved wisely 
to say nothing more just then. I'll run down and see Rachel about it this evening, she thought. There's no use reasoning with Anne now. She's too worked up, and I've an idea that she can be awful stubborn if she takes the notion. Far as I can make out from her story, Mr. Phillips has been carrying matters with a rather high hand, but it would never do to say so to her. I'll just talk it over with Rachel. She sent ten children to school, and she ought to know something about it. She'd have heard the whole story, too, by this time. Marilla found Mrs. Lynde knitting quilts as industriously and cheerfully as usual. I suppose you know what I've come about, she said a little shamefaced. Mrs. Rachel nodded. About Anne's fuss in school, I reckon, she said. Tilly Balter was on her way home from school and she told me about it. I don't know what to do with her, said Marilla. She declares she won't go back to school. I never saw a child so worked up. I've been expecting trouble ever since she started to school. I knew things were going too smooth to last. She's so high-strung. What would you advise, Rachel? Well, since you've asked my advice, Marilla, said Mrs. Lynde amiably. Mrs. Lynde dearly loved to be asked for advice. I'd just humor her a little at first. That's what I'd do. It's my belief that Mr. Phillips was in the wrong. Of course, it doesn't do to say so to the children, you know. And of course, he did right to punish her yesterday for giving way to her temper. But today it was different. The others who were late should have been punished as well as Anne. That's what. And I don't believe in making the girls sit with the boys for punishment. It isn't modest. Tilly Balter was real indignant. She took Anne's part right through and said all the scholars did too. Anne seems real popular among them somehow. I never thought she'd take with them so well. Then you really think I'd better let her stay home, said Marilla in amazement. Yes, that is, I wouldn't say school to her again until she said it herself. Depend upon it, Marilla. She'll cool off in a week or so and be ready enough to go back of her own accord, that's what. While if you were to make her go back right off, dear knows what freak or tantrum she'd take the next and make more trouble than ever. The less fuss made, the better, in my opinion. She won't miss much by not going to school as far as that goes. Mr. Phillips isn't any good at all as a teacher. The order he keeps is scandalous, that's what. And he neglects the young fry and puts all his time on those big scholars he's getting ready for queens. He'd never have got the school for another year if his uncle hadn't been a trustee. The trustee he just leads the other two around by the nose, that's what. 
I declare, I don't know what education in this island is coming to. Mrs. Rachel shook her head, as much as to say if she were only at the head of the educational system of the province, things would be much better managed. Marilla took Mrs. Rachel's advice, and not another word was said to Anne about going back to school. She learned her lessons at home, did her chores, and played with Diana in the chilly, purple autumn twilights. But when she met Gilbert Blythe on the road or encountered him in Sunday school, she passed by him with an icy contempt that was no whit thawed by his evident desire to appease her. Even Diana's efforts as a peacemaker were of no avail. Anne had evidently made up her mind to hate Gilbert Blythe to the end of life. As much as she hated Gilbert, however, did she love Diana with all the love of her passionate little heart, equally intense in its likes and dislikes. One evening, Marilla, coming in from the orchard with a basket of apples, found Anne sitting by the east window in the twilight, crying bitterly. Whatever's the matter now, Anne? she asked. It's about Diana, said Anne. I love Diana so, Marilla. I cannot ever live without her. But I know very well when we grow up that Diana will get married and go away and leave me. And oh, what shall I do? I hate her husband. I just hate him furiously. I've been imagining it all out. The wedding and everything. Diana dressed in snowy garments with a veil and looking as beautiful and regal as a queen. And me, the bridesmaid, with a lovely dress too and puffed sleeves but with a breaking heart hid beneath my smiling face, and then bidding Diana goodbye. Here Anne broke down entirely and wept with increasing bitterness. Marilla turned quickly away to hide her twitching face, but it was no use. She collapsed on the nearest chair, and burst into such a hearty and unusual peal of laughter that Matthew, crossing the yard outside, halted in amazement. When had he heard Marilla laugh like that before? Well, Anne Shirley, said Marilla as soon as she could speak, if you must borrow trouble, for pity's sake, borrow it handier home. I should think you had an imagination, sure enough. Chapter 16 Diana is invited to tea with tragic results. October was a beautiful month at Green Gables, 
when the birches in the hollow turned as golden as sunshine and the maples behind the orchard were royal crimson and the wild cherry trees along the lane put on the loveliest shades of dark red and bronzy green while the fields sunned themselves in aftermaths. Anne reveled in the world of color about her. Oh, Marilla, she said one Saturday morning, coming dancing in with her arms full of gorgeous boughs. I'm so glad I live in a world where there are Octobers. It would be terrible if we just skipped from September to November, wouldn't it? Look at these maple branches. Don't they give you a thrill? Several thrills? I'm going to decorate my room with them. Messy things, said Marilla, whose aesthetic sense was not noticeably developed. You clutter up your room entirely too much with out-of-doors stuff, Anne. Bedrooms were made to sleep in. Oh, and dream in too, Marilla, Anne replied. And you know, one can dream so much better in a room where there are pretty things. I'm going to put these boughs in the old blue jug and set them on my table. Mind you don't drop leaves all over the stairs then, said Marilla. I'm going on a meeting of the AIDS Society at Carmody this afternoon, Anne, and I won't likely be home after dark. You'll have to get Matthew and Jerry their supper, so mind you don't forget to put the tea to draw until you sit down at the table as you did last time. It was dreadful of me to forget, said Anne apologetically. But that was the afternoon I was trying to think of a name for Violet Vale, and it crowded other things out. Matthew was so good, he never scolded a bit. He put the tea down himself and said we could wait a while as not, and I told him a lovely fairy story while we were waiting so he didn't find the time long at all. It was a beautiful fairy story, Marilla. I forgot the end of it, so I made up an end for it myself, and Matthew said he couldn't tell where the join came in. Matthew would think it all right, Anne, if you took a notion to get up and have dinner in the middle of the night, said Marilla. You keep your wits about you this time. And I don't really know if I'm doing right. It may make you more adulpated than ever. But you can ask Diana to come over and spend the afternoon with you and have tea here. Oh, Marilla! Anne clasped her hands. How perfectly lovely! You are able to imagine things after all or else you'd never have understood how I've longed for that very thing. It will seem so nice and grown-up-ish. No fear of my forgetting to put the tea to draw when I have company. Oh, Marilla, 
can I use the Rosebud Spray Tea Set? No, indeed. The Rosebud Tea Set? Well, what next? You know I never use that except for the minister or the aides. You'll put down the old brown tea set. But you can open the little yellow crock of cherry preserves. It's time it was being used anyhow. I believe it's beginning to work. And you can cut some fruitcake and have some of the cookies and snaps. I can just imagine myself sitting down at the head of the table and pouring out the tea, said Anne, shutting her eyes ecstatically, and asking Diana if she takes sugar. I know she doesn't, but of course I'll ask her just as if I didn't know, and then pressing her to take another piece of fruitcake and another helping of preserves. Oh, Marilla, it's a wonderful sensation just to think of it. Can I take her into the spare room to lay off her hat when she comes? And into the parlor to sit? No, Marilla shook her head. The sitting room will do for you and your company. But there's a bottle half full of raspberry cordial that was left over from the church social the other night. It's on the second shelf of the sitting room closet, and you and Diana can have it if you like, and a cookie to eat with it along in the afternoon. For I dare say Matthew will be late coming in to tea. He's hauling potatoes to the vessel. Anne flew down to the hollow, past the dryad's bubble, and up the spruce path to Orchard Slope, to ask Diana to tea. As a result, just after Marilla had driven off to Carmody, Diana came over, dressed in her second best dress and looking exactly as it is proper to look when asked out to tea. At other times, she was as wont to run into the kitchen without knocking, but now she knocked primly at the front door. And when Anne, dressed in her second best, as primly opened it, both little girls shook hands as gravely as if they had never met before. This unnatural solemnity lasted until after Diana had been taken to the east gable to lay off her hat, and then had sat for ten minutes in the sitting room, toes in position, How is your mother? inquired Anne politely, just as if she had not seen Mrs. Barry picking apples that morning in excellent health and spirits. She is very well, thank you. I suppose Mr. Cuthbert is hauling potatoes to the lily sands this afternoon, is he? said Diana who had ridden down to Mr. Harmon Andrews that morning in Matthew's cart. Yes, our potato crop is very good this year. I hope your father's crop is good too, said Anne. It is fairly good, thank you. Have you picked many of your apples yet? asked Diana. 
Oh, ever so many, said Anne, forgetting to be dignified and jumping up quickly. Let's go out to the orchard and get some of the red sweetings, Diana. Marilla says we can have all that are left on the tree. Marilla is a very generous woman. She said we could have fruit cake and cherry preserves for tea. But it isn't good manners to tell your company what you're going to give them to eat. So I won't tell you what she said we could have to drink. Only it begins with an R and a C and it's bright red color. I love bright red drinks, don't you? They taste twice as good as any other color. The orchard, with its great sweeping boughs that bent to the ground with fruit, proved so delightful that the little girls spent most of the afternoon in it, sitting in a grassy corner where the frost had spared the green and the mellow autumn sunshine lingered warmly, eating apples and talking as hard as they could. Diana had much to tell Anne of what went on in school. She had to sit with Gertie Pye, and she hated it. Gertie squeaked her pencil all the time, and it just made Diana's blood run cold. Ruby Gillis had charmed all her warts away, true as you live, with a magic pebble that old Mary Joe from the creek gave her. You had to rub the warts with the pebble and then throw it away over your left shoulder at the time of the new moon and the warts would all go. Charlie Sloane's name was written up with M. White's on the porch wall and M. White was awfully mad about it. Matty Andrews had a new red hood and a blue crossover with tassels on it, and the airs she put on about it were perfectly sickening. And Lizzie Wright didn't speak to Mamie Wilson because Mamie Wilson's grown-up sister had cut out Lizzie Wright's grown-up sister with her bow and everybody missed Anne so, and wished she'd come to school again. Diana was about to mention what Gilbert Blythe had been getting up to, but Anne didn't want to hear about Gilbert Blythe. She jumped up hurriedly and said suppose they go in and have some raspberry cordial. Anne looked on the second shelf of the room pantry, there was no bottle of raspberry cordial there. Search revealed it away back on the top shelf. Anne put it on a tray and set it on the table with a tumbler. Now please help yourself, Diana, she said politely. I don't believe I'll have any just now. I don't feel as if I want any after all those apples. Diana poured herself out a tumblerful, looked at its bright red hue admiringly, and then sipped it daintily. That's awfully nice raspberry cordial, Anne, she said. I didn't know raspberry cordial was so nice. 
I'm real glad you like it. Take as much as you want, said Anne. I'm going to run out and stir the fire up. There are so many responsibilities on a person's mind when they're keeping house, isn't there? When Anne came back from the kitchen, Diana was drinking her second glass full of cordial, and being entreated thereto by Anne, she offered no particular objection to the drinking of a third. The tumblerfuls were generous ones, and the raspberry cordial was certainly very nice. The nicest I ever drank, said Diana. It's ever so much nicer than Mrs. Lynn's, although she brags of hers so much. It doesn't taste a bit like hers. I should think Marilla's raspberry cordial would probably be much nicer than Mrs. Lynn's, said Anne loyally. Marilla is a famous cook. She's trying to teach me to cook, but I assure you, Diana, it is uphill work. There's so little scope for imagination in cookery. You just have to go by the rules. The last time I made a cake, I forgot to put the flour in. I was thinking the loveliest story about you and me, Diana. I thought you were desperately ill with smallpox and everybody deserted you, but I went boldly to your bedside and nursed you back to life. And then I took the smallpox and died, and I was buried under those poplar trees in the graveyard, and you planted a rose bush by my grave and watered it with your tears. And you never, never forgot the friend of your youth who sacrificed her life for you. Oh, it was such a pathetic tale, Diana. The tears just rained down over my cheeks while I mixed the cake, but I forgot the flour, and the cake was a dismal failure. Flour is so essential to cakes, you know. Marilla was very cross, and I don't wonder. I'm a great trial to her. She was terribly mortified about the pudding sauce last week. We had a plum pudding for dinner on Tuesday, and there was half the pudding and a pitcher full of sauce left over. Marilla said there was enough for another dinner, and told me to set it on the pantry shelf and cover it. I meant to cover it just as much as could be, Diana, but when I carried it in, I was imagining I was a nun taking the veil to bury a broken heart in cloistered seclusion, and I forgot all about covering the pudding sauce. I thought of it the next morning and ran to the pantry, Diana. Fancy, if you can, my extreme horror at finding a mouse drowned in that pudding sauce. I lifted the mouse out with a spoon and threw it out in the yard. Then I washed the spoon in three waters. Marilla was out milking, and I fully intended to ask her when she came in if I'd give the sauce to the pigs. But when she did come in, I was imagining that I was a frost fairy going through the woods 
turning the trees red and yellow, whichever they wanted to be. So I never thought about the pudding sauce again, and Marilla sent me out to pick apples. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Chester Ross from Spencervale came here that morning. You know they are very stylish people, especially Mrs. Chester Ross. When Marilla called me in, dinner was all ready and everybody was at the table. I tried to be polite and dignified as I could be, for I wanted Mrs. Chester Ross to think I was a ladylike little girl, even if I wasn't pretty. Everything went right, until I saw Marilla coming with the plum pudding in one hand and the pitcher of pudding sauce warmed up in the other. And that was a terrible moment. I remembered everything, and I just stood up in my place and shrieked out, Marilla, you mustn't use that pudding sauce. There was a mouse drowned in it. I forgot to tell you before. Oh, Diana, I shall never forget that awful moment if I live to be a hundred. Mrs. Chester Ross just looked at me, and I thought I would sink through the floor with mortification. She's such a perfect housekeeper, and fancy what she must have thought of us. Marilla turned red as fire, but she never said a word. Then, she just carried that sauce and pudding out and brought in strawberry preserves. She even offered me some, but I couldn't swallow a mouthful. It was like heaping coals of fire on my head. After Mrs. Chester Ross went away, Marilla gave me a dreadful scolding. Why, Diana, what is the matter? Diana had stood up very unsteadily. Then she sat down again, putting her hands to her head. I'm awful sick, she said a little thickly. I I must go right home. Oh, you mustn't dream of going home without your tea, said Anne in distress. I'll get it right off. I'll go and put the tea down this very minute. I must go home, repeated Diana, stupidly but determinedly. Let me get you a lunch anyhow, implored Anne. Let me give you a bit of fruitcake and some of the cherry preserves. Lie you down on the sofa for a little while and you'll be better. Where do you feel bad? I must go home, said Diana, and that was all she would say. In vain, Anne pleaded. I never heard of company going home without tea, she mourned. Oh, Diana, do you suppose that it's possible you're really taking the smallpox? If you are, I'll go and nurse you. You can depend on that. I'll never forsake you. But I do wish you'd stay till after tea. Where do you feel bad? I'm awful dizzy said Diana, and indeed she walked very dizzily. Anne, with tears of disappointment in her eyes, got Diana's hat 
and went with her as far as the barrier yard fence. Then she wept all the way back to Green Gables, where she sorrowfully put the remainder of the raspberry cordial back into the pantry and got tea ready for Matthew and Jerry, with all the zest gone out of the performance. 